This is Infants on Thrones. All right. Um, so this is going to be a sharing time where I talk to you as I'm driving in the car <laughs> because I watched the under ba- under the banner of heaven the first two episodes last night and I just can't get this out of my mind. I it it brought up things in me that. I, I didn't realize we're there, you know, and, and for me, having been in this podcasting world, spending so much of my time over the last 10 plus years, just pouring over my own relationship to Mormonism, that's something that this show pulled up, you know, like it, it, it forced me to look at things that I just, I hadn't even considered. So I wanted to share as a throwback this episode from, uh, I think this was like the fourth episode or maybe the sixth episode of Infants on Thrones. I think it was Tom that put together uh, just a review of the Crack Hour book. It's short and we're going to do some more uh, reviews on this show coming up. But um Man, what what a great what a great show! So let me just share with you a couple of my uh, reflections from last night, and I got to go back and watch it again. But first of all, I freaking I I I don't know totally what Lindsay Hansen Park what role she had in this, but I just have to stand up and applaud the way that the show just nailed what it's like to be a Mormon family in the 80s. Andrew Garfield and the actress that played his wife were so good. And those little girls, uh, wow. So then as as, uh, Andrew Garfield is driving in to the scene of the crime, he's in his car and he's saying a prayer to himself. And that just like hit me in the gut because <laughs> I used to do that like I remember I remember going to get my um, interview done when I was 18 I was getting ready to go on my mission and I had to be interviewed by the state president and I was driving in Provo and praying to myself and just you know like I wanted to be good I please heavenly father uh, bless him with the spirit of discernment that you know he'll be able to detect that I'm worthy to, to serve but if I'm not worthy to serve then yeah sure go ahead give him the discernment for that too cuz I I just want to I just want to be a pure vessel uh, you know I just I want to be of service to you but bless me that I'll be kind and loving and uh, you know, listening to Andrew Garfield talk about like praying to himself as he's gearing himself up to witness just some horrible, horrible shit. It just made me think, you know, for all of the horrible, horrible shit that the Mormon church itself uh, spreads <laughs> in this world, it's it, it, to to have a culture that is so based on family and even you know like I, I was watching this with 
with Cammy and her, her 22-year-old son, Adam, and Adam's like, why do they say Heavenly Father? Why, why, why don't they just say God? Like, you know, because of the family thing, right? And because Father feels more loving and like, I don't know, maybe this is just a me thing, the, the emotions that I have around the word Father as opposed to the word God. It just seems like there's more emotional closeness to that and what Mormonism has become which isn't too surprising because it started as a family affair really with the Smiths and and the people that they brought into their tight circle that rapidly expanded uh, but then also wanted everyone in that rapidly expanding circle to be sealed together for all time and eternity that the emphasis on family and just the way that he's playing with his girls in the front yard and reading them bedtime stories and just this innocent, loving focus on the family, focus on being kind to others. I just, man, it made me really appreciate the way that Mormonism formed those kinds of values in me that I still absolutely feel and exact and, and we're part of the reason why I got so frustrated about the other things that would tear families apart and that would make people uh, not be kind and compassionate because the other person's not worthy to. And so you see that, like what I saw in, in looking at these two different examples of people coming out of a Mormon culture, you know, you've got the Andrew Garfield, uh, TBM, detective whatever uh character and then you've got the 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 crazy lafferty uh fundamentalist extremist that you're just seeing mental health issues and how being a psychopath and uh narcissist and just abusive using the symbols of mormonism you know it it made me wonder with all, with all this podcasting that I've been doing over the years, have there been times where I've confused and I've conflated cause and effect of the pain and the trauma? Is, is the cause and effect of the pain and the trauma really the, the Mormonness of the abuse? Or is it the, uh, the psychology of a person being a narcissist, the psychology of a person being uh, uh, whatever. You get what I'm saying, right? I'm driving. I'm driving. So how many shows have I watched like The Sopranos or uh, The Godfather movies where I'm looking at organized crime? And how many cultures around the world have this kind of organized mafia type structure and organization you know you've got the the japanese yakuza for example but so you could put the japanese yakuza and the 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 mob the mafia in new jersey for the sopranos side by side and you can see similarities in their structure and organization you can definitely see similarities in their personality types and ask what is the cause of this is it on the one case is it Shinto culture or Buddhist culture that created these people? Is it the Roman Catholic 
nature that created the mafia and the mob? Is it the Mormon religious stuff that creates the uh, horrors among the Lafferty's, especially with their dad killing the dog of the of Ron? You know, like and 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 the mom that goes and says, "Oh, your dad just doesn't see how." chosen the Percy are and she's just lifting this guy up you know it's just like these family human dynamics and mental illness that have this ripple effect and they show that ripple effect through time even with some of the flashback scenes to uh, the Mormons being persecuted Joseph being uh, pulled out to be tarred and feathered and I loved how they threw in that little you know the reason why you're doing this is because you've been sleeping around kind of thing that uh, you don't typically hear about when you hear about the stories of Joseph being tarred and feathered. <laughs> but that whole persecution complex thing, that because those stories stay around, then they influence the people today, even though this is something that happened hundreds of years ago, uh, and and you'll have people develop a persecution complex like the Lafferty's do and think, oh, because we're being persecuted by the U.S. government, then this is just more proof of our righteousness, and it just fuel, fuels their mental illness. And so, is the problem is is the problem of suffering and harm a result of the religion, or is it the result of the mental illness? And the the religion is like window dressing; it, it it's the decorations. It's secondary to the actual uh, mental illness and, and that kind of neurological dysfunction of distorting reality. Anyway, man, so many thoughts. So I wanted to share them with you today quickly, uh, squeezing out the time that I could. So I hope that you will pardon me for doing this while I'm driving in the car. And I hope that you enjoy listening to this throwback episode from 2012 our infants review of under the banner of heaven and there will definitely be more under the banner of heaven content coming up on infants on thrones over the next several weeks so all right thanks rock on everyone a few years ago i went through what is commonly referred to as crisis of faith Crisis of faith occurs when someone's faith is either changed or when one experiences a loss of their prior faith in something they once firmly believed in. Well, this happened to me. You're listening to the Infants on Thrones podcast, and my name is Tom Perry. It was late 2007, and the local news were reporting on a new controversial movie that was about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. I was completely naive to the massacre and then all of a sudden I found myself immersed in this shameful event of over 150 years ago. I went to the local library and read as many books as I could get my hands on on the massacre and found myself completely engrossed in the mid-19th century. I read Juanita Brooks, Will Bagley, Turley Leonard Walker, and a few others. There was one particular book that I read that really hit me hard, Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. This book is mainly about a gruesome, cold-blooded murder by two religious fanatics, Ron and Dan Lafferty, but it also explores many other historical events, like the origins of the Mormon Church, the secret practice of polygamy, the kidnapping of Elizabeth Smart, and of course, the Mount Meadows Massacre. 
I'm a pretty avid book reader and I immediately thought of a few questions that I ask myself after every book that I read. How would I rate this book on a scale of 1 to 10? What parts of the book stood out to me the most? How historically accurate was Krakauer in his research? And would I recommend this book to others? And with this book in particular, would I recommend this book to any faithful Mormons? So I wanted to take these same questions to some friends of mine to see how they would answer these same questions. I've included in this podcast a panel discussion with myself, of course. Brandy? So Tom, you can leave it in or you can edit it out. I don't give a <laughs> Glenn? We're fighting a battle against God, or <laughs> against Satan. Jesse? He's going to be able to, yeah, it's not working the glory. Hi, I'm Matt Long. What Christians really read the Bible? And I've also included some separate reviews by my friend Stephanie. I think that he did his homework. Um, and that's probably one of the elements that made it so difficult to read. Because he did have it right. My friend Alan. That good people are going to do good things and bad people are going to do bad things. But that it takes religion to, take, to make a good person do a bad thing. To an extent, I think that's right. And my friend Jay. I was still full-on active, doing a calling, believing member at the time. I remember thinking... Wow, I finally understand how an outsider can look at all the facts and look at Mormonism with an objective perspective and in good faith conclude, eh, well, it's not for me or it's not true. There are several clips I've included throughout this podcast. I will have links where you can access all the clips in their entirety on the website, infantsonthrones.com. I'll provide a brief summary to the book for those of you who haven't read it yet. In American Fork, Utah, on July 24, 1984, Brenda Lafferty and her 15-month-old baby daughter Erica were brutally murdered by Ron and his brother Dan Lafferty. There's many questions that are raised by this unexpected and horrific event. First and foremost is why. How could two seemingly sane, God-fearing men commit such an act? What led them to do it? What were their motives? What happened to them to cause them to do such a thing? John Krakauer attempts to answer these questions along with many more in his book Under the Banner of Heaven. Krakauer follows the Lafferty brothers through their disaffection from the mainstream LDS church and into their own Mormon fundamentalist belief system. Howard Burks from NPR Books asks John Krakauer, what is this book all about? The book is about the nature of faith and I think faith you know, it's a double-edged sword, and I think it can be a very dangerous thing. And we all know about Islamic fundamentalists, and, and they're evil. But too few people realize that we have plenty of religious extremism in this country. Krakauer focuses on American polygamists who derive their framework of faith from the early teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormon Church. These are people who believe polygamy is a divinely inspired practice and that God speaks directly to them sometimes with horrific commands. The man who kidnapped Elizabeth Smart received a revelation from God, and God told him he needed to take seven additional wives. And poor Elizabeth Smart had the misfortune of being the first of these wives, and he abducted her. Brian David Mitchell was charged with kidnapping and sexual assault after 15-year-old Elizabeth Smart was rescued from nine months of captivity. Krakauer writes far more words about polygamist and convicted murderer Dan Lafferty, who killed his own sister-in-law and baby niece. Because he believed God commanded him to. These murders occurred in 1984, and still he feels no remorse for what he did. It was a terribly brutal crime. 
Terry Gross from Fresh Air on NPR asked John Krakauer, why would you want to write a book like this? You know, I wanted to look at uh, religious extremism and the Mormon faith, perhaps unfortunately for the Mormons, seemed like a natural to me. Uh, first of all, I, I grew up in a small town in Oregon among Mormons. I mean, I had Mormon friends, close friends, and teachers and athletic coaches. So, and, and they'd invited me to their homes. So as much as I knew about any religion, I knew about uh, the LDS faith. And also, it's, it's a distinctly American religion. I mean, this is in some ways, the quintessential American religion. I mean, Islamic fundamentalism, we know about that, and some other fundamentalist face, but it, it seemed like it would sort of drive things home to realize that this isn't over in Afghanistan or Pakistan or somewhere. This is, this is in America. So that was part of the reason I focused on Mormon fundamentalism and Mormon extremists. But also, uh, the, the Mormon religion it presents really tempting opportunities for a historian or a journalist because the church was incorporated only 173 years ago. This is what's, what's becoming a, a major world faith. I mean, it's going to be one of the big ones before long. And yet it came into being in the age of the printing press and the affidavit, you know, in the bright lights of modern, of modernism. So the origins of this religion are, are really accessible. I mean, it doesn't, you can easily find affidavits from people who who knew Joseph Smith when he was putting this religion together. So, you know, you can really see, see what, what, how a religion begins. And all of that was, was interesting to me. And I thought, um, you know, it was clear to me that if I'm going to write about religion, this is, the Mormon faith is the one to focus on. Stuart Parker, a former BYU professor, was recently on a podcast called Caustic Soda. And they were discussing the Lafferty brothers, and John Krakauer's book had come up in the discussion. Ron and Dan Lafferty. Dan Lafferty and his five brothers grew up in the mainstream Mormon church, but in the early 80s, they drifted into the fundamentalist fringe. They were excommunicated from mainstream LDS. The eldest brother, Ron, claimed to have received an order from God to kill four people, including their niece and her mother. Four months later, Brenda and Erica Lafferty were dead. That was in 1984. Uh, Found guilty of the murders, Dan Lafferty was sentenced to two life terms. And Ron Lafferty's on death row. Amazing what you can justify like to the voice of God. You can pretty much uh, do anything. And that story is the subject of the 2003 investigative nonfiction book by John Krakauer, Under a Banner of Heaven. Yeah, and Krakauer, I really disagree with the thesis of his book. It's mm-hmm. like he argues that there's this history of violence running through uh, Mormon history. Right. But in fact, if you compare the Mormons to other people who yeah. live in that part of the world, I think it's a very hard case to make. What you see, if you want to see what kind of crimes uh, you get more of in Utah, it's fraud. Right. Fraud is off the charts in Utah because you have a society of, that produces an excess of both swindlers and marks. Uh, a society that generates both a surfeit of gullibility and yeah. a surfeit of liars. Right. Of course, this wouldn't be much of an Infants on Thrones podcast without some panel discussion, right? So why don't we start maybe around the table, just giving a quick review of the book, one being the worst book you've ever read, ten being the best book you've ever read in this genre, I guess, this nonfiction genre particularly. So, Matt, why don't you lead us off? Where would you rate this book on a one to ten? I thought it's a good book. If I guess if I have to put, give it a rating, I'll give it a seven, a seven and a half. I really enjoyed it. I've read it twice now, once probably four or five years ago. And then once this month, preparing for this uh, 
podcast. Unlike you, yeah, who's who have to listen to it, I actually do read. So I went through the book. It was a, I, I liked it. I thought it was well written, and it was compelling. Yeah, but a seven's like average, or not average. I guess five's average. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, what scale? What scale are you looking at? It? Well, because I was, yeah, I mean, I was thinking like a C grade. You'd give it like a seventy percent. It's a C grade, but. You know, whatever. No, on the on the yeah, it's it's definitely above average as far as all books go. It was there were some wasn't the greatest book I've ever read, but it was definitely worth reading, and I'd recommend it to other people. Okay, so Glenn, uh, what do you rate it? Oh, I'd probably give it around the like an eight or a nine. I to to me, it it ranks right up there with Devil in the White City and The Nineteenth Wife. That uh, you know, both of them ha- are, are kind of this historical fiction thing. Uh, where it's telling the narrative and then interjecting different historical uh, expositions, I guess is the way to say it. But uh, yeah, I liked it. But, yeah, but this uh, one, yeah. this one, historical almost... fiction. It's not really. Yeah. But what, what, well, fiction, like, what fiction is there? Well, no. In this in this book, it's strictly nonfiction. But I think, like in the Nineteenth Wife by Ebershoff, that's that's a historical fiction, right? Isn't that what you're talking about? Okay, yeah. Technically, yes. The the 19th Wife has the, the fictional story that's juxtaposed with the history from Analyza Young. But to, to, to me, the way that I was trained, even personal narratives are fiction. You know, so like, because, because he's selecting certain details and omitting others, it is a fiction, even though it's nonfiction. So, yeah, I, I'm probably using a different definition of fiction when i'm talking about historical fiction no i accept that yeah because i thought the same thing is anytime they're they're talking this many years after the fact talking to a uh, like a criminal here like this the guy the, the guy who is uh, is it ron or dan i always get him confused but um yeah when he's interviewing dan you, you know that that is fiction a lot of the stuff that he's relaying this many years after the fact um is not going to be completely accurate so i did take it as a lot of the things that he's relying on from the interview is not going to be uh, factual yeah okay but that's something being non-factual isn't the same as fiction fiction is yeah, a genre uh, of oh, literature and this is as this a is biographer working, it's not working as a biographer the glory. he's gonna he's gonna be able to yeah it's not working the glory he's gonna be able to <laughs> you know inter- assess the credibility of the witnesses that he's that he's interviewing and be able to give them the appropriate weight. And I think he does that fairly well throughout the book, that he will identify his own, you know, uncertainties or, or areas where maybe there's some controversy, but he, he will explain what he's talking about when there's when something could be unclear. Randy, let's let's hear your rating, because I know that this is the first time you'd read it, at least recently, right? That's the first time I read it ever. Um, my wife read it during my faith crisis, uh, but I didn't read it. I was, I was focused on other things, but, uh, I give it like Glenn an eight or a nine. I know, I know, I know. Listen, Randy sounds like he's got his head in a fishbowl and he's from outer space. I know it sounds weird. The audio quality from Randy's side was, was really tough to get through, but we tried to clean it up. So we appreciate it. If you could bear with us because Randy actually had some pretty cool things to say in this. And I don't give it a 10 for the same reasons that Matt doesn't give it a 10. Like, after a while, there's a couple of chapters that some of the fat could have been trimmed. You, you get the point after a while uh, that these people are knocking putts. You know, he just kind of piles on story upon story that didn't really add to the overall arc. Uh, See, but I, um, I, but, I, thought, I thought that but, it did uh, add to the overall arc, Randy. I, I didn't. 
<laughs> I think he had enough with, uh, and I was okay with the LeBaron story. There was like one other story he added. I was like, I, I could have done without this one. Well, see, I think I, I would have liked if that's what he was doing then is not just have him from Mormonism, have a couple really clear case studies from a couple different major religions then. And that might have been an interest, uh, kind of a way to really highlight that theme. But the Lafferty's, I thought, did it enough. The Lafferty's and, and the Elizabeth Smart case, uh, I think, are two uh, great examples uh, of, of the, the Mormon examples, I guess. What, what I really uh, was impressed with, though, was the uh, lack of snarkiness that he brought to this. I mean, he, he didn't, I mean, despite what the church says about this book and and uh, that you know only gullible people will believe this. I mean, he really presented it pretty fairly, uh, in my opinion. Um, you know, it wasn't a book that was that set out to make fun of religion in general. No, but he he used loaded adjectives a lot. You know, like if he's talking about the DNC one thirty two, he calls it the notorious DNC one thirty two. So I. And is it I, is it not notorious, is it, I mean, Glenn? How would you describe it? I don't know. It? I mean, it's a god awful piece of literature. But no, no, <laughs> but notorious has certain pejorative connotations, so it's a loaded adjective. And maybe he's not being snarky, but he's also not hiding his biases. And, so, and he doesn't even you know, like he doesn't even set out to hide his biases. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I didn't have a problem with it, but I'm just I'm just acknowledging. You know, I, and I didn't read this when I was, you know, still believer or whatever. But if I had, I probably would have been really sensitive to those kinds of adjectives, and it would have turned me off. Hey, this is Jesse. Um, yeah, so I'd probably give it, you know, this book I'd probably give it an eight or nine, definitely. But I'm a I'm a huge Krakauer fan. I read all of his books. I just really really like his style. I, I like his his writing a whole lot, so I'm probably probably the most favorable towards him. Like in terms of just wanting to read anything that he puts out there. Um, if you if anybody likes biographies um, and just really interesting stories, any of his books are just they're just outstanding. They're they're all very fascinating. But in terms of this in particular, I liked it because it just it's a compelling story, and I liked how he wove in so much church history and for someone who I was just impressed throughout the book by how, how a non-member could so accurately understand all of church history or, or a lot of church history and just be able to weave it together in such an interesting way. I think, I think the other, some of the other guys are right that, yeah, there's probably stories in there that he didn't really need to include, but on the same token for people who don't have any background in Mormonism, those really give a lot of perspective um, as to the kinds of, you know, violence and the kinds of things that he's talking about throughout the book. During the discussion, I mentioned a guy named Lyndon Lamborn, who's the author of the book entitled Standing for Something More. And Lyndon mentions on his YouTube channel the impact that Under the Banner of Heaven had on him and his life. Next question is, how did I come to question my beliefs in the LDS Church? This is really quite simple. I was uh, talking to a co-worker that mentioned that they'd read the book Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. And I really enjoyed his book Into Thin Air about Mount Everest. And I, I esteemed him highly as an author. So I thought, boy, I should read that book. And they said, some of the things they bring up about 
your church are, uh, are amazing to me because I, I find it hard to believe that all those things would be true about such a prominent religion, such a well-thought-of religion, you know, that's right here in our own community. How could these things be, these big skeletons in the closet? These things don't sound like they could be true that are in this book. So I said, you know, I don't know if those things are true, but I'll, I'll read the book and look into it. So uh, I read the book. Well, you know, it's very bloody, and, and I don't really know if I'd recommend it to, uh, for, for good reading. But in the book, they bring up the history of Joseph Smith and uh, the Mount Meadow Massacre and a lot of these things in the early days of the church. And a lot of the things that I read in that book, I'd ne really never heard of. I'd been told, for example, and this was brought up in the, uh, in the article, I think, that Joseph Smith had many women sealed to him. When we say sealed, that's something that happens in the temple. Okay? And it can happen in this life or after this life. Okay? Both. Both are equally binding uh, in heaven. And I was told that Joseph had many women sealed to him after he died, but in, in this life, he'd only had his one wife, Emma, his first wife. So that's the information I had, and this book brought up uh, different information. Well, and his eyes are open because Krakauer does this wonderful job of, uh, I, I really don't want to use this word, but he juxtaposes uh, Mormon, Mormonism of the 19th century to fundamentalist Mormonism of the 20th century. And the similarities are chilling. And this is, I mean, this is why a TBM, a true believer Mormon, can't read this book without feeling really, really uncomfortable. And that's probably why it set him off, uh, was, was the similarities between the two. Well, what, what, is your, what is yours on a scale of 1 to 10? I think I would give it a 7.5 or 8 for sure. I, I enjoyed it as a nonfiction book. I mean, I bought the print book and the audio book, so I think I don't do that with a lot of books. So that just goes to say that I, I really enjoyed it. The chapter on Mountain Meadows Massacre, I think, is absolutely phenomenal. So it's one of my favorite chapters in the book. But my biggest complaints about this book is the uh, the amount of tangents. Like, so he uses the Lafferty's as kind of a story backbone, and then he constantly goes on these tangents, which I understand, but the tangents are so long and so thorough and so researched that each tangent's almost like a book in all by itself. And sometimes I... And Why sometimes is that a complaint, just, though? That's, that's awesome. That's just his style. That's just his style, though, Tom. Is it like, just if his you, style? Yeah, if you read, like, some of his other books, um, he'll, he'll go off on tangents for, it's, you know... I mean, it is kind of distracting if, if that's not really what you're expecting because you're well, kind because of wondering he, where the backbone of the story is when yeah, he goes off so far. When he goes off so far, I almost forget, oh, yeah, this is about the Lafferty's. Oh, yeah, that's right. So just because I have a short attention span, that's all, Glenn. Yeah, I, I think I think he wants you to do that. I mean, I I don't know, putting words in his mouth, but I I I think putting in all of these tangents, you know, building all of these case studies around really strengthens the overall story. And then he can he can in a couple of sentences draw you back into the main story and show you these connections, you know. And I think he did that with the one mighty and strong. Is that what it is? You know, because all of these. All of these case studies were about this religious zeal that just goes to the extreme. I, I don't know. I, I didn't have a problem with that. I thought it was good. 
Well, in some of his tangents, though, it was clear that he was just using that as his own speculation as to what could cause the motivation or the justification of these murders. Because at the end of the day, he's trying to explain a horrendous murder by Ron and Dan Lafferty. Just just horrific murders. And he's trying to explain it with all this stuff in history, in Mormon history. And some of it, I think, is relevant. And some of it, I'm not so sure is so relevant. I understand how polygamy is like the key focal point, even in Mormon in Mormonism itself. Polygamy was just such a such a traumatic event, and some people were just so incredibly loyal to it to their dying day because they had wives and children, and they kind of had to be. But you know, like blood atonement, maybe that was part of it, but maybe it wasn't. And I know it was a pretty big deal back in the day, but did I do I really think that? Dan and Ron still believed in blood atonement. I guess they sort of did with the the revelation, the removal revelation, but it seemed like a stretch to me. I don't know. That's just me. One thing I wanted to say, Tom, about these tangents um, and the main point, like you mentioned polygamy. You thought polygamy was the focal point. I, I, I thought that he was describing these different seeds that are planted in the religion about defying the government. You know, or defying any kind of authority that goes against whatever your religious authority is, whether that's a direct connection to God or whether it's your ecclesiastical leaders, that trumps any kind of law. And so all of these stories that he's telling, even when he's talking about Joseph Smith and the way that he set up the church, it's all kind of pointing to, you know, when Dan Lafferty goes, ah, I'm not going to pay taxes. I'm not going to do this. And he starts going down this path where he sees himself as being separate and special and apart from anybody else in society who has to obey rules. And, and if, if religion's able to do that over and over again to people, what does it say about faith? The, and so that's kind of what I got out of each one of these tangents is that they were these, these case studies. Well, and a couple times I thought, I thought it was interesting when he would talk about some of the historical stuff uh, about the church and talk about some of their little, uh, I guess, the things that are embarrassing, especially the violence stuff. As, as, as I was reading it, I'm thinking, well, really, what does this have to do with La- the Lafferty's? Because there's no real evidence that they knew about, uh, y- you know, all the stuff that was going on back then about be- before Hans Mill and that the that the members of the church were, uh, you know, that Mormons were out there uh, burning people's houses and, and doing these things, or even met mountain Meadows Massacre. There's no, no, there's no indication that they knew about that. So initially as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, well, this is just a tenuous connection to the Lafferty's just because they're Mormon. But then I realized he, that was just another example of, of telling this story uh, or the idea of religion can motivate people to do inhumane and horrible things. Well, and I think it's another domino in that chain that gets you into the you know, once once the saints are out in Utah and they're feeling that, that isolation, but we can finally be ourselves and it's us against the world, you know, and, and that there are still remnants of that in Mormon culture that fed into what Dan and Ron Lafferty did and the decisions that they made. So I, I do think that there's a connection to the history of Mormonism with Hans Mill and, you know, being run out from city to city and feeling like, you know, we're, we're going to do what we want to do regardless of the laws of the land because this is, this is God's law. We're, we're, we're living a higher law. And there's that thread that continues all the way through with all of those tangential stories. Yeah, but I think 
as far as like a faithful believer, why some of the reasons why they might dismiss Krakauer's perspective and speculation in this book is because he spends so much time focusing on the extreme examples, on the very rare situations where, you know, somebody splinters off and forms their own church. And, I mean, the mainstream LDS church is pretty big and pretty vast. I mean, why why is Krakauer spending so much time focusing on these little splinters, these little uh, break-offs because of polygamy and whatnot? And and I, I can understand that to a degree, but... Well, I don't think I don't think the true believer is his main audience that he's writing to, but... I think the the more evidence that you have that this isn't an isolated event, the stronger your case is. I, I think this is a good time for Matt to talk about uh, how isolated some of these cases might actually be. You know, we'd like to believe these are all historical uh, accounts, and even going back to the 80s with the Lafferty's, but this stuff goes on every every day. Um, I'm aware of, of, a, of a couple cases in the last couple of years. Uh, as I've talked about before, I'm you know, working the criminal uh, in criminal law as an attorney, and I'm aware of a case that, that happened in, in Arizona a couple of years ago with a guy specifically got a revelation that he was supposed to uh, engage in polygamy with his uh, biological daughter. Now, he's attending a ward, he, in a, a mainstream ward. Uh, he's got a calling. He is a mainstream Mormon guy. In, in, his, in his mind, he's receiving revelations so that he can start having sex with his daughter, essentially. And he uses it. But he uses these revelations, and this, this girl and the, his, his family members and his wife would talk about how he is so powerful. He speaks for God. He receives revelations. And so he would get revelations that would threaten people threaten his daughter, threaten his wife, threaten other people, uh, as if in the voice of God or in the, in the first person of God, and they believed him. They did not question that because that's kind of what they were taught. And a lot of these things were reinforced, um, this girl will say, in church as they're talking about priesthood and the husband being kind of the head of the family and these types of things. It was reinforced. So it, it, it isn't isolated. I've always said that uh, the church... Um, doesn't create uh, abuse. It doesn't turn good men into abusers. But what it does do is it creates the perfect environment for abusers to thrive, for psychopaths and sociopaths to thrive. With the authoritarian, the revelation, uh, you know, uh, I'm the leader of this family, I'm the leader of this ward, I'm the leader of whatever, and I am entitled to revelation for my stewardship, and, and, you know, what better witness can you have than from God? And so it just creates this playground for psychopaths. <laughs> and, and I think that's what you see. And I think that's one of the uncomfortable things that you'll, uh, parallels that you'll find between these, uh, isolated fundamentalists and what actually happens in the mainstream church. I wonder what Krakauer would say. And then I wonder how Mike Otterson would respond. They didn't produce these aberrant people, but their faith, their doctrine, gives license and encourages them. It allows them to do this. It, it gives them the weapon. I mean, it, it shows them the way. It gives them the path. It, it's a little bit like suggesting that Jesus and the early apostles would be responsible for the Spanish Inquisition or for the Crusades. Mike Otterson is a spokesman for the Mormon Church. The church leaders teach doctrine and teach principles. And those principles based, of course, on the gospel of Jesus Christ teach about how we get on with each other, teach uh, peaceful relations. But you get some aberrant 
individual years later, how is that the responsibility of the church or the teachings? One of the things that the Elizabeth Smart uh, section does is, 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 I think, emphasize the impact that a devotion to religion can have not just on um, someone like the Lafferty's or, or an offender, but on a potential victim. That that can really impact uh, the way a victim uh, responds and kind of accepts the abuse and some of the things that are going on by the abuser. And that's certainly something that we see uh, today. I was just going to push back a little bit more against Tom's point that, yeah, some of these things are are tangential, but at the same time, every single one of them is tied in intricately with uh, official Mormon doctrine, or at least what used to be an official, you know, mainstream LDS doctrine, blood atonement, polygamy, you know, every, every story in the book has its roots in mainstream Mormon history at one point or another. Um, and just because that's uncomfortable or that's unfamiliar to a believer today, that doesn't mean that it's any less relevant to the story of, of what might have been swimming around in, in you know, Ron or Dan Lafferty's head when they were committing these things. All those ideas are there in the background. And frankly, some of them are there in the foreground because a lot of them are, are based in the scripture. I mean, when when the LDS Church claims that it, you know, that DNC 132 is scripture, and then people read it closely and realize, hey, we're not following what it actually says here, I mean, that's going to create problems. Well, the Book of Mormon has probably the worst example of uh, how to uh, ignore what's right and, and uh, violate the law for what God tells you to do with Nephi killing Laban. And so, you know, Christians may have things like, um, I don't know, Abraham, right? He's going to sacrifice his son, but ultimately it doesn't happen. Whereas Mormons have this example that is held up every week in, in, in Mormon churches across the country about a guy who commits a murder on a defenseless guy because God told him to. And, and so that example is in the foreground, and, is, is, and it's used specifically by uh, Dan and Ron Lafferty, and I think it's something that, that people have a real difficulty with uh, because it is a principle. Whereas if God tells you what to do, you have to obey God. Yeah, I, I think Christians have the same problem. It's just a lot more distant. There's other examples in the Bible, like like Japheth, or um, I mean, there's a lot of examples of people killing in the Bible, you know, uh, who, innocent, who, innocent what, people. What Christians really read the Bible? But I I agree with your but point. There, For Mormonism, it's more recent. It's more in the foreground. It's it's actually spoken of and and considered. Um, and I think the Abraham example as well that you should be. You know, the ultimate example of obedience in Mormonism is Abraham, that you should be willing to do anything, including killing your own son or your own child, if that's what God tells you to do. But there, there's this important point that he makes in the book. When, the, when uh, Mormonism started, Joseph Smith was drawing in a lot of converts because he taught this principle that everybody could get their own revelation straight from God. He had a lot of, like, crystallized... Uh, Protestant religions that were unsatisfying to people at the time, and, and really one of the reasons why uh, there was a second Great Awakening at the time. So Joseph uh, started off with saying, okay, everybody's entitled to it. But then when he started to realize that that decentralized the power away from him, because in the end, who's going to win, the prophet or God? God's going to always win. And so Joseph kind of let the genie out of the bottle. 
And then he tried to reel it back with the revelation in DNC where it says, okay, the only one that can get revelations for the church is my servant, Joseph Smith Jr. But it was too late. He'd already had all those other revelations beforehand. So the genie was already out of the bottle. And that is really the seed of, of all these fundamentalist sects and, and basically people believing that they got direct revelation from God to do anything. Because if God says it's okay, it's moral, therefore, do it. Doesn't this really get into a, a, more of a discussion or a debate of the potential toxicity of religion and faith? I mean, I can, I can appreciate a discussion like this where we can, we're talking about some of the effects that a religion or some that are very fundamentalist in a particular religion, primarily Mormonism, what we're talking about, can cause some very disastrous effects. I can appreciate that. But do you think that that was Krakauer's underlying message in all this? Because I didn't think so. I think he was just following, you know, the Lafferty's and then trying to explain and try to understand why they could have done such a thing. How could they could justify it? Because later on in the book, when he's interviewing the Lafferty brothers, he actually says that they seem very sensible, um, very together. And they seem like they did the right thing to a degree. They don't feel like a whole lot of guilt or remorse about it. Yeah, but no, I think it does. It, it's not just about the, these, these fundamentalists, right? Because at the end of the day, what is a fundamentalist? A fundamentalist is somebody who actually takes their religion seriously, who believes what the Bible says, who believes what Scripture says, who believes what leaders say. Everyone else is just some sort of a, a cafeteria Catholic or a cafeteria Mormon. Because they're like, yeah, yeah, I know it says that, but it doesn't really mean it. So they, they, they start losing the magic and they start uh, ignoring some of the supernatural. Fundamentalists are religion, whether it be in America, Islam, or anyone else. And I think to try to distance yourself, people who try to distance themselves from them ultimately are just embarrassed about their religion. I, I do think he went out of his way, though, to not just blindside religion or not to just paint with such a broad brush religion as a whole. I, I don't think that was his point, was to attack religion. I think his point was to tell a story, to get the interesting parts of the story in there, and then to let the reader kind of draw their own conclusions. And if that's the conclusion that people are going to draw based on his examples, then, you know, I don't think that, that, he, that he said that overtly. I will say, having read one of his other books, Into Thin Air, it's about uh, people climbing Mount Everest. There's a lot of re religious beliefs that the Sherpas, which is like the tribe that helps a lot of people climb the mountains in Himalayas, there, there are some beliefs that, that the Sherpas have that get people killed um, and that have resulted in Sherpas dying and, and himself dying. And, and he condemned you know, those beliefs as well in that book. So I think his personal bias kind of shows through that he... He probably isn't a religious person. He probably doesn't have too many sympathies with the church. But in terms of telling the story biographically, I don't, I don't think you can really argue with too many of his, of his factual points. Terry Gross from Fresh Air on NPR asked John Krakauer whether he believes he had an anti-religious bias going into this book. There have been many moments when I've been terrified or despairing or, or moments when I see something of such incredible beauty that I'm awestruck, where I find myself praying involuntarily. You know, the old, there's no atheists in foxholes. I'm sort of proof of that. I, I don't say there is no God. I say I don't know if there's God. And, 
and uh, and and all the religions I've studied, um, some with the, with the hope that they would convince me, have left me with a bad feeling because so many of them say theirs is the only answer, theirs is the only faith. So that's why I'm I'm put off by by so much uh, religion seems political and to have other agendas and simple simply explaining uh, eternity or 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 why we are here. I don't know if that makes sense, but I'm still questing. I'm I'm a I'm a, I'm a a spiritual person. Uh, I'm not. I'm not this cold rationalist who thinks, you know, there's no no meaning to life. It's just this cosmic accident. I just don't know what that meaning is. And I, and this book was an attempt, a good faith, honest attempt on my part to explore the meaning of of, of existence and explore religious belief. In the uh, prologue, there's this one line out of it, and that this to me summed up. The book. There is a dark side to religious devotion that is too often ignored or denied. As a means of motivating people to be cruel or inhumane, as a means of inciting evil, to borrow the vocabulary of the devout, there may be no more potent force than religion. And that, to me, I, I think is the theme of the book. And maybe it's not just as religion, but maybe it's about people who are zealous and if they're zealous towards what you're talking about then towards uh, uh climbing mount everest whether they're zealous in in their ideas about uh, whether or not we should should or should not vaccine children or take any zealous position even politics that incites people in, in my opinion to uh to do evil and to do harm Terry Gross from Fresh Air on NPR asked John Krakauer whether he believes that this book was a direct assault on faith or on the Mormon church. I mean, and the church isn't just off in a corner by itself practicing its faith. It is very aggressively trying to convert the world. I mean, they have 60,000 missionaries out roaming the world at any one time. They assert that they are the world's one true church and try to convince people of that. So if you're going to make that kind of assertion, you can't complain, it seems to me, when people challenge that assertion. And and, and the church is increasingly powerful. Um, I mean, that you can't just say, oh, it's a religion, that we should leave them alone to practice as they see fit. I mean, I, I grew up with Mormon. I, I admire so much about their culture, their values. Many of us would do well to adopt their values. Um, but it doesn't mean they are beyond criticism. I mean, I, mean I, I think many saints, as Mormons call themselves, will read this book and see that it isn't an attack on Mormonism. It's not even an attack on religion. It just raises questions. I mean, I, you know, I understand the, the impulse. I envy that that religious impulse and that sense of belief. But I just, it just has escaped me. So I would take issue with those who characterize this book as an attack on religion in general and Mormonism in particular. What, do you have a copy of the book with you? I do. What, what is the very last sentence of the prologue? It has to do with faith. It is the aim of this book to cast some light on Lafferty and his ilk. If trying to understand such people is a daunting exercise, it also seems a useful one, for what it may tell us about the roots of brutality, perhaps, but even more for what might be learned about the nature of faith. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, and and, and that, that's why, I mean, I've, I've said this before with these different case studies and the tangents, but I think that's really what he's, he wants to explore. He wants to explore what are the possible causes of this darkness, you know, because when you think of religion, generally you would think, you know, people being very devout and 
kind and charitable and, you know, beatitudes in Jesus, but then you've got this dark undercurrent that he mentions. And so you ask the question, what is it that would lead to this? And uh, yeah, to me, that's what the book's about. This actually is the book he set out to write. Uh, he set out to write a book to understand how uh, educated and intelligent people, when they do learn all the facts, uh, still somehow manage to salvage their faith and their religion. Uh, so then he, you know, he's like, okay, well, I wanna, I'm going to pick the one true major American religion. And so he started with Mormonism. And then he just got so sucked in and fascinated at the extremism that Mormonism seems to predispose people to uh, that he went in a completely different direction uh, in regards to his exploration of religion. I must confess that the book you are now reading isn't the book I set out to write. As originally conceived, it was going to focus on the uneasy, highly charged relationship between the LDS Church and its past. I'd even come up with the title, History and Belief. I intended to explore the inner trials of spiritual thinkers who walk in the shadows of faith, as Pierre Teilhard de Chardin described it. How does a critical mind reconcile scientific and historical truth with religious doctrine? How does one sustain belief when confronted with facts that appear to refute it? I was fascinated by the paradoxes that reside at the intersection of doubt and faith, and I had a high regard for congenital skeptics like Teilhard, who somehow emerged from the fray with their belief intact. The research, however, kept pulling me onto a slightly different heading, and after fighting it for many months, I decided to surrender to this unplanned course and see where it might take me. The upshot, for better or worse, is that I wrote Under the Banner of Heaven instead of History and Belief. Who knows? Maybe someday I will yet complete the latter. So here's a question I have, and as I read this book, I kept trying to honestly evaluate this and reflect on this. If Is Mormonism unique, or do you, can you really have the same extreme examples in... Catholicism or in Baptists or in other things that in, in mainstream churches do you do you have this this same thing that happens at least in the modern day I know it with the Catholics I guess and I'm kind of talking as I'm oh gosh the Cru- the Crusades and and all types of things that the Catholic Church did historically or or but, get, get out of history and get into recent history and talk about pedophilia with the the priests right I think Mormonism's unique be, because it has two elements that are highlighted in this book polygamy and blood atonement and those side effects from those two things because i think that both those things are fairly unique i mean you could probably find elements of that in other religions but those two things cause just just waves and waves of destruction and aftermath i would add on to that too a third one which is the persecution complex i think without okay yeah the the mormon persecution complex you don't get any of this other stuff because those other religions find it much harder to justify going against the law, going against the government, and going against, you know, huge societal norms. I think with Mormons, you know, we're taught to just be, think of ourselves as being separate from everyone, which is so much a part of Mormon history, um, that it, it it makes it easy when people go off the rails, you know, they're going to go way off the rails. 
if you read any of his other books, you'll find that the dark and dreary is kind of his thing. Like every, you know, he's he wrote a book about Pat Tillman. He wrote a book about a guy who went up to Alaska to die. He wrote about a, a book about his story climbing Mount Everest where all these people died in 1996 when he was up there. Um, you know, he wrote a book about the guy who, um, Greg Mortensen, who wrote Three Cups of Tea, and he exposes him. I mean, every one of his books is like this horrible story, and like at the end of it, you just, you're, you're kind of just disgusted with humanity, at least in some small part. Um, I think that's that's kind of his theme or his what's interesting to him whether he likes that or not or whether that's he what he actually set out to write or not that's that's where he's gravitating towards that's fascinating now now it makes me want to read some of his other books so what about you guys i mean knowing that Krakauer didn't intentionally intend to write this kind of book does that change how you view the book or not yeah it takes me back to the the criticism from members of the church to this book and, you know, the official criticism from the church, uh, from Turley. The extreme acts which the extremists justify through pointing to distorted aspects of the church's history are not the responsibility of the church itself. The church teaches thou shalt not kill. If Dan Lafferty and Ron Lafferty choose to violate that directly and commit murder, they become pure and simple murderers who need to be dealt with according to the civil system of the law. From Otterson. I think that the great tragedy of a book like this is that it tends to increase prejudice. It makes people feel that their average Mormon neighbor, the people that their kids go to school with, is somehow a you know, latent murderer. That is an appeal to bigotry and narrow-mindedness. There's a few other like personal blogs that I read that, that detailed criticism against him. I, I, I just I kind of pity them in a way because I feel like they're so myopic, like they're not looking at the big picture at what Krakauer's really saying that he's trying to do, or they're not believing it. You know, they're they're taking this book so personal like it's an attack against them, it's an attack against the Mormon church, the modern Mormon church, where when it's not and to me, there's so much value that you could get out of this if you're mainstream Mormon and you're looking at this and you're saying, oh, yeah, there are these penchants for darkness. Let's, let's look at them. Let's try to understand them. And let's make sure that in our religious practice day to day, we don't fall into any of these traps. You know, no one seems to have the, the maturity to take that approach. And I think it goes back to this this idea in in the Mormon cosmology, the Mormon worldview, that we're fighting a battle against God or <laughs> against Satan, and Satan's warriors come at us in all kinds of forms, and here it's coming in ban under the banner of heaven, and you know we knew this kind of stuff was coming, where the world's going to gather up against us, and it's that victim mentality again, that uh, you know the always defensive against Satan. I really wanted to give this quote. Uh, this is uh, Richard E. Turley. Um, he is uh, the director of the Family and Church History Department for the church. And he says, Although the book may appeal to gullible persons right. who rise to <laughs> such bait like trout to a fly hook, uh -huh. serious readers who want to understand Latter-day Saints and their history need not waste their time on, on it. 
Now let me insert in parentheses, serious readers who want to understand the Letter to Saints just need to read the correlated, whitewashed, sterilized uh, lesson manuals. Then they'll really understand Mormonism. Uh, the fact that he calls people who, who, who uh, would take this book seriously, Krakauer seriously, gullible, is like the, just the most delicious irony imaginable. Uh, you know, it's, it's a religion based on, you know, obfuscating their own history, scaring their own members into learning anything outside of what they teach them, staying, you know, firmly within the mainstream of the church, keeping the blinders on, and then they call people who read this book gullible if they take it seriously. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because obviously this book must have touched the nerves of the church. I mean, like you said, Glenn, why, why was the church so involved or so, why did they feel so threatened by it? Yeah, they, they were already on the defensive before the book was even published. So if anything, that just shows the motivation of them already getting their dukes up like, oh, all right, bring it, Krakauer. We'll yeah, Mike Otterson is the PR guy. He's the head PR guy for the church. He says, this book is not history. And Krakauer is no historian. That is ad hominem 101. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And if you and I hate to keep going back to all of his other books, but and you'll you'll notice it in this book as well. But he, Krakauer, is nothing if not a meticulous, detail-oriented, yeah. just completely over-the-top researcher. And his writing style is one that just shoves content into every sentence. It's not. It's not fluff. It's just, I mean, he just stuffs it full of stories and facts and times and dates and how we know things. And I, mean, I got I got well, to amazing I, in terms of his his research and and the background that he's done for this story. Didn't Krakauer respond to uh, the church's official criticism from Turley and like there were five different points? He did. But, be well, but before but I think that Turley wait, wait, made, before, but it was published in the second edition. But before we get, I want to know what those were. Before we get to Krakauer's response, before I hear anything that Randy has to say, I want to know what they were. Before we get to Krakauer's response, there's one last uh, uh, Turley quote I want I want to give. He says, it "Better be good. It, it, well, if it's not fucking good, you can edit fucking out, mother." <laughs> All right. I liked it better when I couldn't hear him. Yeah. All right. So Turley says, despite having grown up in Oregon and having many many Latter Day Saint friends and acquaintances. Krakauer does not bring the same background, preparation, or perspective to his treatment of violence among Mormon fundamentalists that he brought to his mountain climbing sagas into the wild and into thin air. It's like, okay, Krakauer did a great job in those other books, but once he starts talking about my religion, he did a sh job. It's like, oh, you couldn't be more transparent, you douchebag. Hello? Thanks, Randy. I'm glad we did that. <laughs> <laughs> You know, what's funny is uh, we never really got around to talking about those five points that Glenn brought up. So I thought, you know what, I think it's relevant and I wanted to make sure that the audience was brought up to speed with what these five points were. That Krakauer made a very specific point in correcting because of Turley's response. So I'm not going to read it all word for word, but you're encouraged to read it for yourselves. It's on page 353 through 357. And it's in the appendix to the Anchor edition of the book. Although I strenuously disagree with almost all the points that Richard Turley has made above, he did identify five minor errors in Under the Banner of Heaven that I'd like to acknowledge. First point. Alluding to an observation I made about the Hill Cumorah pageant in Chapter 6, 
Turley scolds, quote, without citing a source, Krakauer exaggeratingly asserts that sooner or later most Latter-day Saints make a pilgrimage there. Although the pageant is popular, most Latter-day Saints have never attended it and most never will, unquote. In this instance, Turley seems to have intentionally misrepresented my words. I did not write that most Latter-day Saints make a pilgrimage to the pageant, which is staged just seven nights each summer. I wrote, quote, Today, no less than in the 19th century, the Hilkamora is one of the holiest sites in all Mormondom, and sooner or later, most Latter-day Saints make a pilgrimage here. I was clearly referring to the place, the hill itself, not the pageant. Second point. Citing a passage in chapter 7, Turley points out that I referred to, quote, Marky Peterson, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, as the LDS president. An obvious error. Elder Turley is correct. This is an obvious error. It escaped my notice and that of my copy editor. Third point. Alluding to the passage in chapter 15, Turley states, quote, Krakauer shows his ignorance of the Book of Mormon and the Bible when he refers to Laban as a scheming, filthy, rich, sheep magnate who turns up in the pages of both the Book of Mormon and the Old Testament. Turley is right. I confused Laban of the Book of Mormon with Laban of the Old Testament. I stand corrected. Fourth point. Referring to a passage in chapter 10, Turley states, quote, Krakauer also accepts the view that Orrin Porter Rockwell tried to assassinate former Missouri Governor Lilburn Boggs after Joseph Smith purportedly prophesied Boggs would die. Then he writes that Rockwell had no difficulty eluding arrest. Neither he nor any other saint was ever brought to justice for the deed. Turley correctly points out that I got part of this wrong. On August 8, 1842, Rockwell was arrested, jailed for nine months, and ultimately released without being indicted for shooting Boggs. I have revisited the text to reflect the fact that Rockwell did not elude arrest, but I stand by my book's assertion that Rockwell was almost certainly the would-be assassin. Fifth point. Citing a passage in the prologue, Turley complains, quote, Krakauer refers to Mark Hoffman's famous forgeries in the 1980s and asserts that Quote, more than 400 of these fraudulent artifacts were purchased by the LDS Church, which believed they were authentic, and then squirreled away in a vault to keep them from the public eye. This is a gross exaggeration. Turley's complaint is valid in part. The majority of the fraudulent artifacts were not placed in a vault, but rather in other places that were inaccessible to the probing eyes of journalists and scholars, and the text of my book has been corrected to reflect this. I am grateful to Elder Turley for pointing out the five errors listed above, which were rectified as soon as I became aware of them. All copies of Under the Banner of Heaven printed after July 7, 2003 include these corrections. I take strong issue with the other criticisms that form the bulk of Turley's denunciation, however. Some of the quote errors he alleges are no more than honest differences of opinion and several of his allegations seem to be part of a deliberately misleading attempt to impugn my credibility. Here's where I've combined Stephanie, Alan, and Jay's reviews and their responses to those questions about this book. Stephanie, uh, just as a quick background, you're, you're obviously a woman. Yeah, that's right. These are the kinds of high-quality questions you're going to get at Infants on Thrones. Uh, you're a woman, right? What was I thinking? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> Number one, how would you rate John Krakauer's book Under the Banner of Heaven on a one to ten? One being the worst book you've ever read, ten being the best book you've ever read. 
I would give it a solid 7, maybe 7.5. Overall, I think it's probably an 8 if you had to nail me down to a to a number. Well, I was going to say 10 out of 10, but uh, best book I ever read, geez. I'm going to change that to 7 out of 10. It was It was pretty good. I've always recommended it to people, but it wasn't the best book I've ever read. Okay, the second question I wanted to ask you is, what were some of the things in the book that really stood out to you? Some of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, you know, I was, first of all, the obvious, it wasn't the book itself, it was the subject matter was really, really difficult to take. Um, There were some things, the way that the author began with the story of the Lafferty brothers and how he, you know, he laid out the the process where, you know, these normal, devout members, and maybe they were abnormal, how the School of the Prophets came to be, how Ron and then Dan found the scriptures and the the, uh, justification that they found to join this this cult and and then, of course, carry on with the murders. When he, Krakauer did this amazing job of weaving that in with the history of the church and some things that just, the line was so linear between where the brothers were and the origins of the church and how he tied that in. It, it was spellbinding and haunting. I think that he did his homework, um, and that's probably one of the elements that made it so difficult to read because he did have it right. So I, I really had no, didn't really know anything about the Lafferty's when I got got into this, and his description, and he did it twice. The account of uh, the Lafferty when he when he goes in to kill the uh, uh, baby. Yes, that was that was quite striking. Where you know he says uh, something to the effect of, uh, "I don't know why God's called me to do to kill you. I guess we'll talk about it later." That phrase was was quite striking. That uh, something that really drove home fanaticism inside the church. Um, maybe it's not inside the church itself, but as part of religious experience altogether. I wouldn't, I'm not going to call throw Mormonism totally under the bus on this. I think it's religious fanaticism altogether. Uh, I think Sam Harris and you know a few others have said this, but good people are going to do good things and bad people are going to do bad things, but that it takes religion to, take, to make a good person do a bad thing. To an extent, I think that's right, and I, I kind of juxtaposed what the Lafferty's did against Mormonism, or, or against the Mountain Meadows uh, massacre, excuse me, and I kind of thought, Lafferty's did what they did because this guy had a break in reality when his wife led him, left him. His wife left him for good reasons because he was having this uh, running towards this fundamentalist idealism of, of religion, which, in my opinion, is a great reason to leave somebody. He had some mental issues. Lafferty's, you know, they kind of had some mental things going on where in Mountain Meadows it was sort of that it took religion to make all those people do those bad things, this cause that they had to keep up. I did kind of juxtapose that those two things. That it was an uh, anti-Mormon book, so I, for years, just kind of stayed away from it. But I was surprised how much I liked it, and he clearly knew his stuff. Uh, the things that surprised me the first time I read it was number one on the list was John Taylor. I, I didn't know this, and I thought, how could I not know this? He got a revelation that we're going to stick it out with polygamy right before he died. Uh, the, the church was a, a basket case while he was at the helm. And, <laughs> and he was going to go down the ship over polygamy. And so after that, I was like, wow, how, how did I not know that? And then that gives this huge subtext to the manifesto that says, 
hey, the prophet's never going to lead the church astray. Uh, it's not in the program. It's not in the plan. You know, he'll take the prophet from the earth. And then, it's, you know, in parentheses, kind of like John Taylor, you know, I, I didn't really realize that before, but it's just this major subtext in the scriptures. I was surprised that William Law was not depicted in Under the Banner of Heaven as scoundrel apostate. You know, he was like, yeah, William Law was a really, really uh, straight up dude. It was just a completely different reading of the of the Nauvoo period than I had ever really seen before. Everything I checked out on it was legit. And the other thing that surprised me that I learned from reading the book was that Elizabeth Smart, you know, I, I was just as uh, taken in by that story when it came out on the news as anybody else. Uh, but what I didn't realize was, was that Brian David Mitchell took her as a polygamist wife, which was, you know, mainly left out of the narrative in the news. And uh, I was like, wow, you know, I'm pretty close to the church. How, how did I not know that? <laughs> You know, anyway, it's just kind of one of those embarrassing things. And then I did not make the connection that Brenda Lafferty was killed in a way that was reminiscent of uh, the temple temple penalties. You know, he slit her throat and he slit yeah, his from, from ear to ear or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So that was kind of creepy when I made that connection. And also the whole blood atonement stuff, I guess I just didn't really, you know, I, I had been so indoctrinated, I guess, that. Blood atonement is fake. That's a myth. That's something that, you know, apostates and anti-Mormons say about Brigham Young. Uh, that one just kind of went, went over my head, too, when actually that actually kind of played a fairly prominent role. Effect it had on me. I was still full on active, doing a calling, believing member at the time. I remember thinking, wow, I finally understand how an outsider can look at all the facts and look at Mormonism with an objective perspective and in good faith conclude, eh, well, it's not for me or it's not true. You know, the Lafferty's were crazy, but they happened to, like, pick the particular flavor of crazy from stuff that's very, very familiar to us. Would you recommend this book to others? Or have you recommended this book to others? I, I have actually recommended the book to others. Um, in this sense of understanding some of my own perspective at the time, um, why certain things were difficult for me, there are those that I wouldn't recommend it to. <laughs> but for anyone that's looking at an, an understanding of this case itself or um, certain general, more broad issues with, with the church and its history, I think that it did a good job, like I said, of drawing a line. Um, it left me quite stunned. The book opened my eyes to how easy it was to go from the mainstream church that I knew and and loved and still love and um, lived most of my adult life and a lot of my childhood too, how easy it was to go from that to that cult mentality. In some ways, when I finished reading that book, there were certain elements of the church that I felt the original church that, that the Prophet Joseph Smith started were more similar to the church that the FLDS and some of these splinter groups practice. That doctrinal jumble is more similar to the early church than what is in existence now in the mainstream church. I would have to weigh carefully who I would recommend this the book to as, as a faithful member of the church. Just because of the stigma that 
oh, you're, you're, you're reading things about the church that isn't produced by the church. Coincidentally, at the same time, I listened to a, a podcast where Joanna Brooks uh, was, was on, and she, she was not taken by, the, by Krakauer's book and was, was taken back and quite, you know, and, and so I tried to look up what she, why she didn't like this book. What was it about this book that she didn't like? And all that I could find was a, a reference to her saying that it was ham-fisted, and, and clumsy isn't a, a word that I would have put with, with a Krakauer. So I, a little bit of disagreement with uh, respectful disagreement with uh, Miss Brooks on the on her what she felt about it. Oh uh, yeah, I, d- I didn't know she disagreed or called it heavy-handed or hard-fisted. Is that what she said? Ham-fisted, ham-fisted, ham-fisted. Well, religious uh, critics of all ilk would love this book, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because um, right, right. they'll 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 they can put it up and say put another notch on their on their belt. To say, here's another example of religion gone crazy. But in reality, I think this, with Lafferty's, it's crazy gone religion. You know, now I'm a little bit more aware of the cognitive dissonance that will be created by reading a book like this. (laughs) So I I won't necessarily be like, yeah, you know, especially now that I'm apostate (laughs) or whatever. I'll probably be less likely to uh, to recommend it to faithful Latter-day Saints unless they know that I'm not coming from a place of, you know, because I don't do that. I'm not I don't come out and be like, hey, let me let me try and tear your testimony apart or whatever. And if they, if I was, they would probably be less likely to want to talk to me. So I'm le- probably less likely to just come out. But if they knew that I was just coming out and saying, look, this is a great book. I still feel the same. OK, let's get back to the panel discussion. All right, so let me let me ask you guys this question. Since I asked this to a few of the people that I asked their reviews, one: Would you recommend this book to others? And and a follow up to that: Would you recommend it to any faithful LDS members? Yes, and I have. Yeah, yeah, yes, my, yes. I want my yes. kids to read it. You want your you want your kid to read it? Is that what you say, Glenn? Yeah, I want my kids to read it. Absolutely. Oof. Yeah, I agree. Hundred hundred percent. It's a great way. It it is a at least a good conversation starter of yeah. some of the difficulties with religion and, and, and even blind spots in general. We all have blind spots, right? And so to highlight those in, in religion, to see where people do have, uh, don't, maybe not see very clearly or see where the problems can, can come in is really an important conversation starter that I'd want to have with my kids as well. I mean, they're just... You know, just for those who are listening to this that are thinking of having the 12-year-old read this, you got to know that there's a scene where uh, Dan Lafferty um, takes a 15-month-old, slits its throat all the way through to where it's basically decapitated, barely hanging on by a thread. Uh, so it's graphic. Look, dude, I read Helter Skelter when I was in sixth grade, so I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, you turned out fine. Well, I just, you know, I, I, th- I threw my book across the room when it comes back as uh, the one, the one of them that doesn't get the death penalty. This is, this is why the death penalty exists is for pieces of like this. Yeah, because the one's still alive currently, right? Dan Lafferty. Well, yeah, and he's cellmates with a, um, Mark Hoffman. Yeah, and, and he's got a life sentence, so he'll never be put to death. He'll, he'll die of a natural death in prison. Uh, Ron is is appealing and appealing and appealing and appealing, so he's still alive, but he's on death row. 
So should we talk at all about the uh, movie rumors that? Uh, ru- I don't think it's rumors. I think it's my understanding is Ron Howard is moving forward fairly uh, rigorously. I guess I guess I say they're rumors because I've been reading these rumors for several years, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully they're on track and production started. I don't know. Ron- no, Ron Howard has it, and the the word is is, is um, Jason Bateman's going to be Dan Lafferty, isn't he? What? No, that's Jason not. Bateman's gonna, that's not. I read according that Jason Bateman. According to Wikipedia, Jason Bateman's going to help help produce it. Huh. Oh, I thought he was going to star in it. I don't. Know. I don't know. Maybe he will. But uh, yeah, Ron Howard's supposed to be directing the film, and then Dustin Lance Black from Big Love and Milk fame is supposed to write the script. So. Yeah, and it's a Warner Brothers owns the rights to it, so it should be a fairly big budget movie. I mean, I'd be. I, I, I hope it's not like a Da Vinci Code type thing, you know. Sounds like it will be. Yeah. <laughs> no, I. Yeah. You know, I, I think. I think a good. Yeah. Uh, Tom Hanks is going to be Ron Lafferty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a good a good uh, screenplay writer could do a lot with this material in, in weaving uh, the Lafferty story, which is compelling, with some of the historical stuff from the church. I think it it would be. Uh, it would really play well on the screen if done, if done right. Without having right. seen any of the screenplay stuff, my guess is that the the, the movie version is going to have very few, if any, of the historical tangents that you know under underpin it. But yeah, know. that would be my guess as well. So well, what do you think if we beat this one to death? Yeah, let's let's call it a day. Just want to say thanks to everybody that was a part of this podcast. I really appreciate it. I had a good time um, talking about Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. Also wanted to remind you guys to please visit us at our website at infantsonthrones.com and you can subscribe and rate us on iTunes. We'd greatly appreciate it. And we also have a Facebook page, Infants on Thrones, and you can like us there and you can also get additional bonus content that you won't find anywhere else. So uh, any volunteers for the closing prayer? Some of the clips I used are from Fresh Air on NPR with Terry Gross, NPR Books with Howard Burks, the Caustic Soda Podcast, and of course I pulled some clips from the audiobook version read by one of my personal favorite narrators, Scott Brick.